I wish that people would understand that CO2 pipelines are safe. They can be designed properly. Carbon storage can occur. And if you truly believe in change in climate or climate change, if reducing CO2 emissions in the atmosphere is the goal, then CCS is the path forward. Good day, everyone, and welcome back to Cutting Carbon. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Brian Gutnick. Jeff, great to be here again. Brian, you know, as we talk about infrastructure, another great episode, another great guest today. Today, we'll be talking about carbon capture and storage, or carbon capture utilization and storage, CCS or CCUS, and that's going to be such an important topic as we think about how many hard-to-decarbonize industries what the technology path for them will be. Now, we've talked about this topic before. Going back to season two, we talked about carbon capture technologies for gas turbines, post-combustion carbon capture in episode three. We even talked with Chris Consoli, who's a geologist from the Carbon Capture and Storage Institute about the geology of sequestration. But we didn't talk about yet is, as we think infrastructure is, well, you've captured the carbon at some location and you got to sequester it at a different location. Well, how do you move it from point A to B? And that's why I'm so excited about today's episode, because today we have Dan Cole on. Dan is the Vice President of CCUS Commercial Development and Government Relations for Denbury. Dan, welcome to Cutting Carbon. Good morning, Jeff and Brian. How are you today? Doing great. Thanks for joining us today, Dan. Maybe to start with, why don't you tell us a little bit about Denbury so our listeners can understand what Denbury does? Wonderful, yes. So uh, Denbury was actually formed around 1995 here in the U.S. And in 1997, it started trading on the New York Stock Exchange. Around 1999, it got involved in enhanced oil recovery over in southwest Mississippi using natural CO2 that was coming out of the Jackson Dome. And in 2001, Denbury actually acquired the Jackson Dome complex of natural CO2 production, as well as the initial pipeline system that was already in operation that Shell had actually constructed back in the mid-80s. Interesting. So it sounds like Denbury is already in the business today of transporting CO2 around the U.S. Yes, we are. We have today a little over 1,300 miles of pipeline that we own and operate. And I think that we actually may be the largest owner-operator of CO2 pipelines in the United States today. That's pretty amazing. For our listeners, can you help give some insight of how much total pipeline there is in the U.S. for CO2 or how much CO2 is moved annually? I don't know that folks have a sense of the scale. Sure, be happy to do that. Back in 2018 and 19, I worked on the National Petroleum Council study that we delivered to the Department of Energy on CCUS. And at that time, it was a little over 5,000 miles. Since that time, we've actually grown that by a little over 100 miles. So we're still short of 5,500 miles in the U.S., uh, but certainly greater than 5,000 to date. Wow. Is that mostly, let's say, U.S. Gulf Coast because of enhanced oil recovery, or is it more spread geographically? 
I would say it's more spread geographically. There is certainly in uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas for the Denbury Gulf Coast system, but you also have CO2 pipelines that have been operating since the 70s out in the Permian Basin of West Texas, actually up into New Mexico and the southern part of Colorado from those natural domes that have been producing CO2. There's pipe in the Rocky Mountain area of Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana, and now North Dakota. There is a CO2 pipeline from the Dakota gasification facility in North Dakota that goes up into Canada. And then there's a small piece of pipe up in the state of Michigan. And there's also a CO2 pipe in the center part of the country in Kansas and Oklahoma as well. Great. So, Dan, you know, we talk a lot and in many third parties reference the important role that carbon capture and sequestration will play in the energy transition. And we've focused this season really around the critical role that infrastructure is going to play in enabling that to happen. Can you maybe share with our listeners what are the things that are most likely to pace this build out of the infrastructure when you think about the pipelines for carbon. What are the challenges getting that done, getting that infrastructure built and in place? By infrastructure, you're talking about the CO2 pipeline that needs to be built in order to handle all the captured carbon. Exactly. Well, in my opinion, I think the first thing that has to happen is that you actually have to have some capture projects move forward. Because without the capture of the CO2 that's today being emitted at the various industries or facilities across the United States, there's really not any need for additional pipeline infrastructure, right? So what works hand-in-hand with that as well is that you've got to have a place to put it. EOR is not the place for all of this CO2 that we know is being emitted today. So you have to have the development of sequestration hub sites. And that involves trying to get access to the pore space subsurface. The surface owner typically is the owner of the pore space that would allow us to use that pore space for the long-term geological storage of carbon. And Dan, just a clarifying question, by the pore space, we're talking about really the underground geology of where that CO2 will be stored, correct? Correct, correct. And once you have those two bookends, the pipelines, I believe, will be built. There will be a project that there will be a line of sight for an economic recovery of the capital that you need to invest to put those pipes in the ground. It'll be like a tolling mechanism that some type of uh, acceptable rate of return by the company that's spending the capital to construct the pipelines and connect the source to the sink. For us, Denbury, we're in the pipeline business and we're also looking at, we've already acquired some poor space rights in the Gulf Coast area to the tune of where we think we could store to date somewhere around 1.5 billion metric tons many, many years of storage, and we're looking at additional sites all along our pipeline infrastructure so that we can offer the utmost flexibility to an emitter that it will be close to him, there will be redundancy of storage, that if something happens at one site, say to a Class 6 UIC well, is that we can transition them to another storage location. 
So Dan, two qualifying questions for you just to again help our listeners. We talk about tolling mechanism. That's sort of a pay-as-you-go. So for every pound or kilogram of CO2 that's moved through the pipeline, there's a charge for it, just like someone comes and picks up your trash from the front yard. There's a charge for that. And is that what you mean by a tolling mechanism? Yes, it's like a transportation rate, you know, on the system. There's going to be a fee for every metric ton or MCF of CO2 that is transported. And then there's also a fee for injection into the storage site. Um, for capital recovery there of the development cost of that pore space and the drilling of the class six wells, the permitting process to get the permit to actually construct and inject, as well as the payments that are going to be made to the pore space owner, that they're going to want to be paid for every metric ton that's injected below their surface. And the second question I had is talking about a class six well that has a very specific definition as we talk about carbon sequestration. So maybe for our listeners, help them understand what is a class six well, what does that mean? So a number of years ago, I think it was just before 2010 or around the 2010 timeframe, EPA came out with the class six rules with help of industry as well as NGOs to develop the permitting process and the process of how one would construct and apply for a class six permit to inject carbon into geological storage that differs from the uic classification that we use in enhanced oil recovery that is a class two uic well those are typically administered at the state level at the state regulatory agency for oil and gas operations water injection wells the same thing But the Class 6 program, unless a state has applied for primacy and actually received that from the Environmental Protection Agency, that is at the federal level with EPA. To date, there have been two states that have primacy, and that is North Dakota and and Wyoming. Louisiana has applied for primacy. I believe that the state of Texas has also applied for primacy. But again, the Class 6, well, that approval gives you the ability gives you that legal permission to inject the CO2 into the pore space, into the geology for sequestration. That's the golden ticket, if you will. It gives you the approval for the injection. It does not give you the approval to access the pore space. That approval you have to acquire from whoever owns the pore space. Pore space in most states, as I mentioned, is controlled by the surface owner, but in some states, It is a joint mineral owner, surface owner ownership, and you typically would have to deal with both the mineral owner and the surface owner to be able to have the legal right to use that pore space. You're listening to Cutting Carbon. If you're interested in learning more about today's topic, please check out our show notes. And if you like what you hear, Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's go back to the conversation. Dan, can you talk through what are some of the challenges that in getting approval to build the pipeline, construct the pipeline, you know, you talk through, I'm sure there are regulatory concerns and challenges with it. There's probably some public acceptance issues. Maybe just talk through what are the challenges of getting a carbon pipeline like this built. 
Well, as you can imagine, I mean, it's very similar to what a company would go through looking to build a new pipeline for uh, transport of oil or natural gas or products or natural gas liquids or anything like that. So you do your pre-engineering work, go out for bid, you get construction bids, you go with someone, but you've got to acquire the easement or the right-of-way from the private landowners or whoever owns the surface along the routing that you're looking to do. There's permits involved, whether it be uh, federal, state, local. There's road crossing permits. There's water body permits. There's a lot of wetlands or water bodies you have to cross. The Corps of Engineers come in, into play and you have to get permits from the Corps in order to do those type of construction activities. Once you have everything lined up, you've acquired the steel and the pipe itself and the valves and the fittings, uh, you get started on construction. And, you know, the constructing part of it is fairly easy. It's all of the pre-work and the engineering and getting access to the ability to, to actually put the pipeline in the ground takes more time than the actual construction. For our listeners, as we think about, you know, many of us are, you know, kind of used to having methane natural gas in our homes and we just kind of know there's pipelines there. As we think about transporting CO2, technically, is there any major difference from a you know technical challenge relative to a CO2 pipeline versus the more kind of ubiquitous methane pipeline that we kind of know but don't always think about? Well, I would certainly say that there are technical differences. I would not label it as technical challenges. There are really no challenges that can't be properly designed for. The technical differences would include such things as CO2 pipelines are designed to transport typically in a dense phase, operating at a much higher pressure than typical natural gas pipelines. Our lines operate, or the maximum operating pressure is up around 2200 PSIG versus 1440 for a natural gas line. We typically construct to ANSI 900 versus ANSI 600 specifications. CO2 pipelines are designed to resist ductile fracture or running ductile fracture. This is ensured uh, during the design phase of the project, something that is done on the CO2 pipelines because of the higher pressure and because of the dense phase CO2. But similar to natural gas lines, uh, the control over the contaminants in CO2 from the emission source uh, that is all accomplished with a CO2 quality specification that all shippers are required to comply with. Interesting. So as we think about, you talked about it's uh, a slightly higher pressure than a methane system. There are some differences. There are some similarities. And you talked about there are a little over 5,000 miles of CO2 pipelines in the U.S. already transporting CO2. I don't recall ever hearing or reading about a safety incident in moving CO2. So tell us a little bit about safety practices and safety records of, of transporting CO2 by pipeline. Sure. Much of the media or general public misperceptions come from their belief that CO2 is inherently more dangerous to the public than other products that are transported by pipeline. CO2, uh, some of the other misperceptions that CO2 pipelines aren't regulated, that's just not true. Congress, back in the Pipeline Safety Reauthorization Act of 1988, required U.S. Department of Transportation 
to regulate CO2 pipelines under the federal pipeline safety regulations. FEMSA in 1989 expanded its federal pipeline safety regulations to cover CO2. These regulations uh, prescribe hundreds of requirements on the construction, inspection, maintenance, monitoring, and incident response on the CO2 pipelines operating today and, and look to be constructed in the future. FEMSA also inspects and enforces compliance on all pipeline operators violating federal CO2 pipeline safety requirements. FEMSA requires that CO2 pipeline operators have an integrity management plan that includes proactive inspections on a regular basis to ensure that pipelines remain safe. These inspections include running diagnostic inline uh, inspection tools. A lot of people call them smart pigs that travel inside the pipeline, scanning the walls with technology similar to ultrasound or MRIs found in a doctor's office. Uh, the pipeline is required to be monitored 24-7 by pipeline controllers who monitor pressure, volume, and other key parameters. There's another misperception that CO2 pipelines are less safe than other types of pipelines. In fact, CO2 pipelines have a lower instant rate than both crude oil and refined products pipelines. Over the past five years, CO2 pipeline is 55% less likely to have an incident than a crude oil pipeline and 37% less likely compared to a pipeline delivering gasoline, diesel, or jet fuel. CO2 pipelines, some believe that CO2 pipelines are new and they're very unproven, but that's not so. You know, CO2 pipelines have been around in the United States since at least the early 70s. And as we mentioned today, there are well over 5,000 miles of pipe operating safely. And last time I looked, I don't know that there's ever been a death attributed to an incident on a CO2 pipeline. So number one, that's great to hear that there's not only regulations, but a great safety record. And I guess this perception of maybe that, you know, a pipeline happens because someone digs a trench and sticks some steel pipe in the ground and covers it up and never gives a thought to it again. It it sounds like there's a lot of technology that's being placed into these from a production quality maintenance and monitoring system. It's it's not just a, a kind of a plug it in and, and forget about it. It's a watch it and monitor it, on a, as you said, on a daily basis. Very true. You know, our control center here is, as I mentioned, is monitored seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And they're looking at everything. And there's alarm set that if something was to occur, it signals alarm and they start looking and seeing what's going on. And they have the ability to shut valves and uh, shut the system down. So, Dan, you mentioned that the pipelines are going to be built once there are enough of the, let's say, the projects to that are capturing the carbon to move it. So it's a little bit the, the chicken and the egg problem. Someone may not be able to deploy carbon capture until there's a pipeline, et cetera. And my guess is there are only certain places where the geology supports sequestration. So how does Denbury think about are there particular geographies that you're most focused in that either you believe they are going to be locations for early carbon capture projects and or in close proximity to some good sequestration resources. What are the focus areas for Denbury? Yeah, so the focus areas for us is we're really not looking at depleted oil and gas reservoirs, is that we're looking at areas where 
typically there have not been a lot of well penetrations. That's the number one goal. And looking at great geology subsurface where there is a natural trapping mechanism that is in place, seismic will tell you that, drilling a stratigraphic test well and doing the coring and the core analysis will tell you that uh, seal is actually there. You're looking for something with great permeability and porosity that would actually accept the CO2 at high pressure, dense phase. There's a couple of different types of storing mechanisms, I guess. There's some that are stratigraphic traps, and then there's some that are flat plays, where you've got a great subsurface formation that is flat and that it just goes on and on forever, and the depth is sufficient to keep the CO2 in dense phase that would allow injection for many, many years, and you've tracked the plume of the CO2 migration through your monitoring wells as well as through a regular seismic that's undertaken. And looking at that seismic over time, you look at what we call 4D seismic, and you can see the movement of the plume. Yep. Hey, Dan, you used a couple terms. Maybe you could just help define for our listeners. You talked trap and seal. Can you just break that down for us a little bit? Well, so thinking of a trap as oil and gas that's been trapped there for millions and millions of years, that's a real trap. So the flat play is just something where there's no hydrocarbon there. It's just a great saline reservoir that has good perm and porosity that would accept CO2 under pressure in dense phase to be injected into that zone. You're not looking to overpressure the formation at all and do any type of fracture. That is one thing you don't want to do. So with those flat plays, you don't really get a pressure build as you're injecting because it dissipates and it moves along through the formation. And it's really one that I think, listening to my technical team talk about it, is that something that they really prefer and are excited about utilizing. And I guess, Dan, the trap here is not a negative. It's a positive word. That's that's the layer that protects that injected CO2 from being able to come back up, whether it's an impermeable rock or, as you said, maybe there's some oil and gas or something that keeps the CO2 permanently subsurface. It's no longer able to come back up. That is exactly right. And by the design of the UIC Class 6 well and the, the cementing that is required in that construction, is that the drinking water zones are all well protected as well so that the CO2 does not migrate uphole and get into the USDWs. So Dan, I want to go back to kind of Brian's questions. You talked about geologies. As we think about wanting to use carbon capture for different industries and, you know, folks are thinking about it, do they need to think about not just where the carbon will come from, the particular project they're thinking about, but what's the geology like around them? Because obviously the geology in the northeast versus the southwest, the southeast, it's not all the same. So do you have to be thinking about, hey, I want to do carbon capture in the next breath, think about where would I put it? Because maybe I can't put in a new 10,000-mile pipeline. Can I connect to an existing pipeline or is there geology that's reasonably close by? Is, is that part of the thinking process that has to go on? Because you, as you said, you've got to connect the dots and that's got to be part of the process. Yes, you do have to connect the dots. And the southeast part of the United States seems to have some great opportunities for CO2 storage. Uh, there's other areas in the country that do as well. But you hit the nail on the head. There's some areas that are not because of the type of uh, geology, the type of rock that's there, is that you just don't have a good site for storage. 
you may be able to store in some of those areas for a very short period of time. But these capture projects, if they're looking at spending the millions of dollars to install the capture equipment, they're wanting some certainty that we or, or the industry has the ability to receive that captured CO2 and to take it somewhere for storage for 12 to 30 years. So you want to go to a site where you believe that you've got adequate storage or a host of sites that had adequate storage that you can start in one, you can fill it up, and then you can move it to another site. Dan, the U.S. government recently signed into law the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which provides some subsidies for various decarbonization technologies, including 45Q, which gives a uh, incentive of $85 per ton for carbon capture and sequestration. How do you think that this policy change is going to affect carbon capture in the U.S. and the need for the pipeline and infrastructure that Denver is working on? I can tell you that since President Biden signed that, I think it was on a Tuesday, is that the calls coming into my office have increased tenfold. It is a driver. It is also something, as I mentioned earlier, the National Petroleum Council study. It was called Meeting the Dual Challenge, a roadmap to at scale deployment of carbon capture use and storage. That study, there were some recommendations that were made to the Department of Energy, and one of those was that the 45Q tax credit needed to be expanded and extended and increased. It needed to go from 50 to 80 or 85 for the second phase of capture, and that the EOR credit at 35 needed to be increased to 60 or 65 for EOR or for utilization. And the IRA did that. And as a result, now all of a sudden, and with the direct pay mechanism that they also put in place for the first five years, now the economics work for so many more industries that it's actually in the economic realm of possibility that they can get a return on their capital that they invest, that it does not put them at a competitive disadvantage if they decide to do it, yet their competitors don't because of this financial incentive is that it provides a great pathway for this to actually occur. And that's what we're hopeful for. Denberry back in April of 2021, we set up a brand new group internally called the Denberry Carbon Solutions LLC. We have staffed that with wonderful technical people. We pull people out of other parts of our organization into this new group that we're solely focused on transport and storage of captured CO2 so that we can provide a service to industrial emitters who are looking at utilizing the 45Q tax credit for a capture project. We're giving them a way that they can be assured that there is a way to get it away from their site and we can take it and we can safely and securely store it subsurface. Great. Dan, we talked about this kind of connecting the dots, if you will. 
is it helpful or you know when you can aggregate some of these dots together i know there are some clusters of opportunities hubs if you will where you can maybe find multiple carbon emitters in close proximity that kind of get together and then maybe justify the build out of that pipeline do you see that as as a big enabler Absolutely. I think it is. Uh, I think it makes the infrastructure development a lot easier. If you look at what we call our green pipeline runs in Louisiana Gulf Coast and Texas Gulf Coast area, it's right along the industrial corridor of so many industries along the Mississippi River and along the Texas Gulf Coast where there's refining and petrochemical and uh, steam methane reformers and all the way to the Houston Ship Channel area. And so those clusters are already there. And if you were to look at a heat map of where the CO2 emissions are that are being reported into the EPA database, is that those bubbles are right on top of our pipeline system. Now, there are bubbles all over the United States. So there's some that you could lay a much longer distance pipeline to gather some of those other sites once they get interested in actually doing the carbon capture if you can economically justify the build out of the pipeline and bring it to the gulf coast for storage or if you can find storage locally there that's something that we're interested in looking at we'll build a pipe and we will look for storage just about anywhere in the united states if it makes economic sense and if you have an industrial emitter of co2 that is wanting to do something to mitigate their carbon emissions or lower their carbon intensity of the good of service that they're producing. So, Dan, it sounds like your view is with 45Q, and you said it helps kind of level the playing field for those who wanted to add carbon capture to an existing industrial process, that maybe this is going to be helpful for many industries to start lowering their own carbon emissions. They've got now kind of the economic help, and as you said, in some parts of the U.S., those sources are if not necessarily directly on top of an existing pipeline or not that far to put a spur line in and connect to an existing pipeline. So do you see this as being helpful for the U.S. of lowering our kind of carbon intensity from these different industries? I do. We still have a little work to do to convince citizens in the U.S. and some of the other states where there's projects that have been announced that there is a large effort by some of the landowners, some of the environmental activists, that they're not wanting CO2 pipelines to be constructed. They're not wanting carbon storage to occur. They see it as a lifeline for fossil fuels. But yet, I think most of America understands that this is going to be a transition process. It is not a energy switch like going into a room and turning on and off the light switch. We can't do that. We have to transition. It's going to take a while. And there's so many things that come from fossil that it will take a while for this to occur. And I wish that people would understand that CO2 pipelines are safe. They can be designed properly. Carbon storage can occur. 45Q helps. And if you truly believe in change in climate or climate change, however you look at it, is that if reducing CO2 emissions in the atmosphere is the goal, then CCS is the path forward.
Dan, I imagine that with today's pipelines, much of the flow of CO2s fairly constant. You've got a, a source of carbon going to, you know, maybe enhanced oil recovery, et cetera, kind of a constant flow. If you fast forward and you think about the role that carbon capture is going to play, cyclic power plants that aren't needed, you know, much of the time when the wind's blowing, the sun is shining, you're getting a lot of power from renewables, but get some cloud cover. These power plants start up, start generating carbon. I imagine these flow rates through the pipelines are going to be quite variable. Is that a consideration as you're building these pipelines and kind of back to your concept of this tolling agreement? Is there like a max flow you think about or a, how do you deal with that variability in the system? Well, most of the projects that we're in discussion with right now is that we're not seeing that variability of capture volume. Is that it is pretty constant that uh, they're looking is that, hey, we're emitting a million tons a year. We're looking at carbon capture. We will guarantee you 90% of that volume over the course of the year. So you've got to know really what you're designing the pipeline for. Do you build a 12-inch line or do you build a 30-inch line? And you don't want to be having air in that pipe some days and it's full another. You want it to operate as close to capacity as you possibly can. And then as other volumes come online for capture or is it being planned for a project to capture is that you look at ways to expand your network do you put in additional pump stations do you do line looping or do you put a brand new piece of pipe in and go out for an open season and say we're looking at uh, putting a new pipe in and here's the diameter and this is the capacity who's interested in carbon capture perfect awesome well, Dan, this has been a great conversation. I mean, we've really touched upon the technology and policy and, and safety and the experience of the industry. And I, I'm hoping our listeners really have gotten a sense of that, as you said, this is a, a mature industry with a lot of experience and a lot of technology that's really standing by to really help many industries in their decarbonization process by providing, as we keep saying, right, we're going to connect the dots. The We'll connect that capture piece with the storage piece, and this is that critical infrastructure in between. Thank you. Absolutely. It's been wonderful, and it's a topic that I enjoy talking about, and it's a business that I've enjoyed being in. Excellent. Well, for the entire Cutting Carbon podcast team, Brian and myself, thank you all for listening. This is Cutting Carbon. <laughs>